Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals Evan Grant and David Moore. Evan is in uh, New York, of course, having a big time uh, reunion with Buck Walter. Uh, How's that going? That was great. Great yesterday. It was fun, fun times for, for me and Buck. He didn't acknowledge my existence, and I and I didn't acknowledge his. I spent more time with Albert and Alberta, the Florida Gator mascots, who were here for some reason in the heart of SEC country, New York City, um, yesterday than I did with Buck. Not, not even a head nod? You didn't even exchange a head nod? No, no, we didn't exchange a head nod. Today, I'm sure we'll have cocktails after the game. I can't um, believe you can't put let bygones be bygones. And I have no demand in this, Evan. Jeez. I have no issue with Buck at this point. Or no contact, has, apparently. Yeah, yeah he's got an not, issue with you. I, I don't think Buck really wants to talk to anybody in the media at this point in time. Oh, that could be. That could um, be. And, you know, the Mets have a lot of rules. I know Buck has nothing to do with this, but the Mets have a lot of rules. Um, you can't – yesterday I got to the ballpark at um, – I had to come straight from LaGuardia, and I got to the ballpark at 2.06, and the media gate opens at 2.10. So uh, I had to wait out there with my suitcase until the media gate opened. And I started <laughs> to go in at 2.09, and the friendly attendant said – Whoa, 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 whoa. I said 210. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, oh, okay, it's 209. And he said, yeah, and you may ask, what difference does a minute make? Well, it does make a difference. And I said, okay, well, now it's 210. He said, okay, let's go. And then I was into the ballpark. Also, for some reason, uh, before the game, the air conditioner in the Rangers dugout was working really, really, really well, which I found significant considering it was about 66 degrees yesterday. And as I said to some people, do you think if it was 90 degrees here today, do you think the air conditioning in the dugout would be working well? These are the kinds of things that the gamesmanship of Buck Showalter makes you think about because he has his hand in everything. Including the key to baseball in his back pocket. Remember when he would run out on the field and everybody would say, why does Buck always run out onto the field with his hand in his back pocket? And the, and I was told it's because he's got the, the key to baseball back there. I believe that was a Fraley Frayleyism, but it was a good, <laughs> it was a good Frayleyism. It was a um, good Frayleyism. We're spending far too much time on Buck Showalter and the Mets. They are, they are a bigger mess than the Rangers have been lately, but um, nonetheless, the Rangers have been something of a mess. Yeah, they have. We're going to get to that in a little bit. We're going to talk about the Cowboys first, though. And we're also going to talk about uh, Cowboys are never football. a mess, I may add. But please, oh, go ahead, Kevin. I didn't no, mean to interrupt no, you. nothing like that. And then we're going to machine. talk about college football this week as, as well, because that's starting up, including the possibility that at any moment, maybe it will already have happened by the time you are listening to this, uh, SMU is expected to join the uh, ACC. Uh, that that. Seems almost kind of impossible, but here it is. After 40 years in the wilderness, SMU wandering around, they have found the ACC, a Power Five conference. So, David, let's talk a little bit about these Cowboys. We've had some big news, of course, uh, over the weekend. Uh, The Cowboys traded a fourth-round draft pick to the San Francisco 49ers for Trey Lance. Um, 
that kind of uh, shocked everybody a little bit. Uh, from, from what we can tell, uh, the, uh, the Buffalo Bills, Baltimore Ravens, and Detroit Lions also were interested in Trey Lance. Uh, apparently, we're only offering either a sixth or maybe even a fifth round draft pick, and the Cowboys up them all with a fourth. Uh, so did you see this coming that when, when Trey Lance was, uh, bounced down to the, uh, third, uh, ring of the, uh, 49ers quarterbacks last week, did you see the possibility that the Cowboys would make a deal like this? Did not, but let me take a step back here and, and put a 42 hour period for the Cowboys into context. And I know many people say, let's just wrap up the preseason. There's nothing left to do. Nothing happens. Let's just get on to the regular season. With that in mind, in a 42-hour period leading up to the final regular season game last week, one of the Cowboys' most promising young pass rushers was arrested for having a vape and a Glock in his car while going 37 miles per hour over the speed limit. DeMarcus Ware was placed in the team's prestigious ring of honor, Jimmy Johnson, who has not been placed in the ring of honor, was trashed while not being placed in, while putting him next to DeMarcus Ware. And the club trades for Trey Lance just hours before their final regular, you know, preseason game. So uh, it was it was quite a frenetic period there. Did not see them trading for Trey Lance. But that does not mean it wasn't a good move and it's not one that could pay dividends. I I'm a little I'm a little surprised so many people are are automatically making this a through line connection to well this gives them you know they're going to have to sign uh, Dak to an extension this gives them leverage in the contract negotiations this is a threat to uh you know Dak Prescott this is not a threat to Dak Prescott this is not even a threat to Cooper Rush at this stage this is about bringing a guy in uh seeing what you have, and then if it makes sense to go forward with him, you do at a very minimal cost. So uh, to me, the it came down to it's his upside potentially greater than Will Greer as your third quarterback. And if your answer to that is yes, uh, this move makes a lot of sense for them, and it, and it gives them the chance to reap dividends from it with minimal cost. And I, so, so from that standpoint, I think it was a. It wasn't one I was expecting, but I think it's a good move. Uh, and and the, and I say this saying that, you know, you could also argue the likelihood is it won't succeed. And even in that scenario, giving up a fourth round pick to get in a young, developmental quarterback to see if you can do something with him going forward, I don't think is a bad move. So to me, it was a. Uh, a, a shrewd move made by a, a team coming up back to back twelve and five seasons that can afford to do it. Yeah, to me, if you look at the fact that, as as I mentioned before, that uh, you know the Bills were looking at it, they've got Josh Allen. Yeah. He's not going to sure. be out Josh Allen. Uh, he's not going to beat out you know Lamar Jackson in Baltimore either. And he's probably he's not going to beat out Jared Goff in Detroit. Uh, these were looked at as investments uh, in the future. And, and as the, the old Ron Wolf model, of course, in Green Bay was that you draft a quarterback every year with the hopes that you develop this guy. And if he doesn't end up playing for you, you trade him to somebody else uh, for an, uh, a better draft pick than the one yeah. you used on him. I, I don't know that there's a possibility that if you try to develop him in the short amount of time, they're going to have him before they have to make a decision on exercising that fifth year or not. 
to see anything. I suppose it's always possible that, you know, I pedal him off somebody else for a fourth round pick or a third round or a fifth round or whatever that you could get back it in so it wouldn't really have cost you anything. And at least you got to look at him to see what you think up close. Everything I've ever heard about Trey Lance is that he's a terrific kid, uh, that uh, they, they like him. The 49ers genuinely liked him, uh, uh, thought he had great character, uh, just hadn't played enough football. You know, he, to me, what he looks like is a kind of a not quite as athletic and certainly not nearly as experienced as Anthony Richardson, who's getting thrown into yeah. the fire in Indianapolis. Uh, that's that's what he seems like to me. And and I question whether Anthony Richardson had played enough football, and he played a lot more at Florida, and he certainly played in a much better league than uh, what Trey Lance played in in college at South Dakota State. So I I, 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 I didn't have any problem with it either. I think it's a fine trade, and if, you know, if it, if it upsets anybody, I, I will say – to me, David, the most ridiculous part of all of this was all the people who went bananas and saying, you're letting Will Greer go for this guy after the great game he just had. It's like Will Greer won a preseason game against a bunch of subs here. What in the world are we uh, losing our minds about? Well, and if you'd seen a little bit more of this from Will Greer, you probably wouldn't have made the move for Trey Lance. Um, so let, let's be honest about that. Uh, you know, Will Greer was here for – uh, two seasons. And, and remember, Will Greer went into last year's training camp and there was a strong sentiment on the Cowboys coaching staff that this guy should not only challenge, but he has a chance to be our backup quarterback going into the 2022 season. Uh, that didn't pan out. He got hurt early. Uh, that challenge never materialized. And then when uh, Dak goes down, uh, you know, Cooper Rush goes four and one and just cements himself as the backup going forward. So, Things turn quickly in this league. I mean, Trey Lance is an example, and this is, uh, look, it, it, this is going to, if Trey Lance does pay dividends for Dallas, this is going to take some while. I mean, he is already technically a reclamation project or just a project that was accelerated beyond what his realistic expectations were coming into the league because he was the third pick and has a while before he even has a chance to work to that level because now step back and go, okay, San Francisco invested three first-round picks to move up in the draft to get Trey Lance back in 2021. Three first-round picks. Now, three years later, they're willing to let him go for a fourth-round pick when a seventh-round pick, who is coming off a major injury going into his second season, is now back in the starter. So that tells you that they felt he was a long way from making any sort of contribution. And, uh, and, and again, another high pick who has failed to live up to where he was taken, Sam Darnold is ahead of him. So uh, this tells you they just felt that it, it had reached the stage, you know, so quickly that they didn't feel it was going to work there. But rarely, I would say, does a team give up on a quarterback who's taken number three before he even reaches the fifth year, you know, where you caught, where you uh, pick up the contract extension in the fifth year. That hardly ever happens. And to move on that quickly, in my mind, shows that he is so far behind, they just felt it would never work for him there. Especially for a guy that, <clears throat> as I said, was not a problem. You'd understand it if, if the guy was, let's, let's face it, if this was Johnny Manziel, 
and a guy that, that uh, wasn't trying, wasn't, you know, as we recently learned, spent zero time studying uh, plays uh, and, and was having issues off the field. Trey Lance was having none of that. Uh, there were no issues with him that would make them say, we got to get this guy out of here. I think they just felt like 49ers are very much in a win now mode, much like the Cowboys are. And, uh, and it's a different situation when a guy has been, when three first round picks have been used on him and the set of expectations that are there. And when, if he goes to, to the Cowboys and they've all they've used on him as a fourth round draft pick, it's not the same thing. And that's, that's why to me, the 49ers get rid of him. I don't have a problem with the 49ers getting rid of him. I have a problem sure. with the 49ers drafting him and spending that much capital. At high. Him yeah. In, they, in the they established game. the expectations for him uh, yes. when they took him there. And, and so yeah. now, but yeah, you're exactly right. Now, constantly in that environment, he's trying to learn, and it's like, well, you thought you're already a failure three years into your career, and you've got to chase the expectations we have for you, and you'll never meet them. That's a very difficult climate to find yourself in. And when you're two quarterbacks back, that makes it even tougher, right? It's not like he was challenging for the backup job. He wasn't able to do that. So now it's two guys are clearly ahead of you. And how do you work your way through that? That's even more demoralizing in a lot of ways. Those expectations aren't here. No one should expect him to play anything this year. Now, now this is interesting, and I know we batted this around a little bit, Kevin. You know, people go like, well, but with his skill set, why not, why not use him in like a, a Taysom Hill sort of package, maybe in a few games, if that what they what New Orleans does with Taysom Hill? Uh, you know, with that work, could you do that? My initial thought is to say. Not now. I mean, this guy just got in camp on Sunday after their final preseason game. Uh, doesn't even know their system. They have no packages in for him. Uh, I find that highly doubtful. But it is interesting as the season goes along and they look at him in practice, as they look at him running the scout team, which is what he'll primarily be doing early against their defense, what if they see something and they go, oh, well, this is kind of intriguing. And, and this gets to... I mean, this is really kind of getting in the structural weeds of, of, of game day composition and, and uh, the mechanics of it. But there's, there's a new – the league is going to a new rule this year where if you have three quarterbacks on the active roster, which the Cowboys do with this deal, which also has roster implications when they make their 53-man roster, but we can talk about that later if you want. But on game day – you can have, if three quarterbacks are on the active roster, all three are available for the game, even though you only have to designate two of them to be active for that game. You know, the 53 goes down to 48 on game day, 48 active players. But that third quarterback, if he's on your roster, is basically the 49th spot with a circle. Uh, he can't enter the game unless the starter or the backup goes down, then you're down to one quarterback then he can play. Now, the initial thought is, well, Trey Lance will always be the third this year. You would have to have injuries to uh, Dak Prescott and uh, Cooper Rush for him to get into a game. And that's prop. I would agree with that. But let's say late in the year, they find some package and they go, okay, well, you go into a game. Uh, you know what? We have a package for Trey Lance. Let's put him in as the backup, knowing if, um, you know, Dak Prescott goes down at some point, well, we still have Cooper Rush and we can just move on to him. That, that would be an interesting manipulation of the rules 
that they could kind of play with late in the season for this to happen. But that may be tinkering around too much. At this stage, they haven't seen them enough to know if that's even a viable, you know, discussion point in my mind. But it's at least something to think about. And I, I sure. would think that, you know, uh, it, because we saw what, I mean, Taysom Hill is a kind of special project. It's like everybody, when something like that works, everybody wants one of those things, right? And and that's, that's a great thing to, to think about uh, until you have the, the personnel to actually do it. Um, I don't know if that's something that's capable for Trey Lance. He did start two games uh, for the 49ers before he got hurt. A different kind of offense, and certainly uh, the 49ers have a very run-based offense. Uh, and, uh, of course, the thing is, that's what the Cowboys are, are supposed to be going towards, right? And Mike, under Mike McCarthy as a new play caller is that they're, they're going to try to run the ball a little bit more. So it'll be interesting to me to see how this all pans out and, and where they take this uh, in, over the course of the season. All right, let's, let's in the rest of our segment, in our Cowboys segment anyway, let's talk a, a little bit more about uh, the roster cuts as they're getting down now. That When this is being taped, this is actually before the, the Cowboys have to finalize all those things. David, do you do you see any kind of uh, surprises here, or anybody uh, that uh, w- was going to make the squad, could have made the squad, uh, deals made on the side, whatever? No, I think so. And, and again, that's what all the machinations are. And and the the key thing to keep in mind is, you know, the initial fifty three man roster is going to look different by the time they get to the Giants game in the opener on September tenth. Uh, if you remember last year. Their initial 53-man roster had one quarterback, no kicker, no, no long snapper. Um, you know, and, and what you what you do is, and I think this time too, I, I doubt you'll see the long snapper, um, or uh, actually, I, I think probably uh, C.J. Goodwin, one of their team special team guys, because they cut side deals, saying, okay, you're a vested veteran, you can sign anywhere, you can't be picked up, you know, we have a spot for you. We're going to bring you off the practice quad for two or three games early before we put you on the active roster. It's not going to impact your contract. And these players are going to say, well, fine, because you have a defined role for me where other teams don't. So some of those deals are going to be cut. Uh, you know, the, the the backup offensive line is something where Dallas is looking at the numbers out there, seeing if they can upgrade that position. They, they don't feel completely comfortable there. Now, they have some defensive linemen that some other teams would want. And, you know, what they were doing going up to when they had to mandate their 53 uh, by by Tuesday afternoon was checking with other teams to say, okay, do you want this? What will you give us for one or two of these defensive linemen? A a lot of this is so close. It comes down to, okay, if we cut this guy, can we get him back to the active roster where we can't get this other guy? That's always a consideration. And two well, we like both of these guys. We lean toward this guy. But if we're more likely to get a draft pick from the other guy, uh, more likely to get a draft pick for this guy, but not the other guy, we'll lean toward the guy that's just, you know, uh, a percentage below what we think he could do. So uh, that alters, that tweaks what your roster looks like. But but the nucleus here is all is all set. There, there aren't going to be any surprises there. It's not like they're going to release a a starter that, that you didn't see coming. I, I just don't see that off a 12-5 and five team and, and how training camp played out. Uh, I don't think any major surprises at all. 
Well, let's before we get out here to I can't ignore the Sam Williams thing, you know. So the so the guy has been this is his second year with the club. Uh, he has almost as many arrests two as uh, sacks four. Uh, so at what point do they say, you know, listen, uh, the potential is great, but this is too much. It doesn't seem like to me they're anywhere close to that. Judging by the, the comment that uh, uh, Jerry made where, well, he's really improving in his maturity, which you, you, you can't see that, but it, his was that uh, and Jerry's really glib comment was, well, he's, Gone from 98 miles an hour to 66 miles an hour. That's 32 miles an hour improvement. Uh, a really dangerous comment for a guy to say who had once had on his roster a, a young man who went to prison uh, for killing somebody and uh, for because of speeding on the tollway. Uh, these kind of things uh, that, that Jerry says they're not funny, and he really needs to. Uh, he needs a little bit uh, more. Uh, I guess he needs somebody standing on the sideline over there kind of pulling him aside and saying, you, you can't be saying this kind of stuff. Not that that's ever going to happen. But anyway, my point about Sam Williams, how, how long is the leash on him? My, my understanding is I, um, th- this current uh charge he's facing is probably going to take all year to adjudicate and nothing will happen so uh and from the league while the league has an open investigation they're not going to jump ahead of the uh, judicial system and impose any sort of fine or, or or suspension on their own before it has its way to work through the judicial system so it's not going to impact uh sam williams this year directly but you know, this is the second that the other one, you know, he was, you know, he was uh, in December. Uh, he T-boned a, an older woman when he was driving 98 in a 55 mile per hour zone. Um, so, uh, so he's basically, you know, he's crashed one car and, uh, and then had this other episode where you know, it, it, this last one is, look, we don't want to get too deep into the legal system here, but he had a gun in the car. The reason the gun was included on the charge was because he had a vape cartridge in marijuana. If he had, if he hadn't had the vape, then they wouldn't have issued anything for the gun. So it would have just been a speeding charge. So the Cowboys are saying, well, this is just a domino effect. And, you know, let's not make more of it than it is. But they're aware of his history. They're aware of these two episodes since December. Um, He can't continually put himself uh, into the legal system like this, and there won't be consequences. So I think it's more more the pattern of behavior that they're concerned with now than where he is as far as the – which is why why Jerry made the very poor joke in my mind about him making progress on speeding. They feel that – well, if you hadn't have been speeding, you wouldn't have been pulled over and you would have nothing on your record right now. So just stop speeding. Now that glosses over the other, but it's just like, you know, just stop speeding and work on that and see where it hap- what goes from there. But, you know, we've talked about before, there are a lot of, I do think a lot of young players who make mistakes do get better in their decision-making and make fewer mistakes 
But let's say you make 10 mistakes a month that can put your career in jeopardy and you lower that to five a month. Well, you're making progress, but as long as one of those five come to light, it doesn't look like you're making any progress at all, right? So I think they feel that's where Sam Williams is, along with a lot of other young players. Okay, he's starting to make better decisions and show more discernment, but he's not doing it all the time. Yeah. And we'll find out if he actually is getting better at that or not. You know, <laughs> Well, we we'll don't see. know. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all pans out. He was very fortunate that that elderly woman was not hurt seriously in that accident. Uh, yes. That, that he had that was because that's a completely different situation, right? If that, you know, oh, yeah. otherwise. Yeah. Um, so, and again, that's, that's the fine line you're walking on these things. Sometimes it's, it's, again, it is the result. It's not, a lot of times it's not the intent or the action is the cut, the result or consequence of it changes your consequences. Yeah. And you're exactly right. If that would have been a, a significant injury or even worse, he would be dealing with something much more right now. Uh, and, and this later infraction would carry even more weight. Yeah, absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for our, the Cowboys segment of our podcast today. We've got a lot to talk about today because this week uh, uh, college football starts up. Uh, September the 2nd, Saturday, I'll be out in Fort Worth for Deion Sanders making his return to the area, bringing those Colorado Buffaloes to play TCU. But before we talk about colleges, let's talk about the Rangers, who, who did something this season they've never done before. This, this team has been all over the map, setting all kinds of records, doing all kinds of crazy things. But who would have thought that it was late August before this team that had been first place all season long until just the last week finally won a game that it had been trailing going into the eighth after the eighth inning? That's, that's kind of a remarkable stat, Evan. I don't know. How much of that kind of thing do you believe is just a fluke and doesn't really mean that much? And how much of it is – yeah, well, they need to get over. They need to, as as our as our pal Bruce Boshi said the other day, they needed to get off the Schneid on that. Yeah, he's one of America's few remaining Schneid users. Um, I, I, listen, they are they were zero and forty seven when trailing after eight. Teams are going to have remarkably bad win loss percentages when they trail after eight. That's the these are these are uncommon wins, but a championship caliber team should be able to make a couple of them happen over the course of a year. I think it's telling that the Rangers with a lot of players who were here last year, I think were one in 81 in games when they trailed by, when they trailed after eight last year. So I do think there was something of a hangover. And I do think that, that, that really this kind of win is the kind of win that a, that a championship caliber club, puts together. And I think it's the kind of thing that helps kind of to use a phrase Ian Kinsler used on the radio the other day, molds championship DNA. And, and I think this is one thing the Rangers have, have fought a little bit this year. They've got a lot of talent. They've got a lot of playoff experience, both in the dugout in, in, in the manager seat and on the roster, but they haven't done this together. And you can't really experience it and and mold it until you've gone through it. And the Rangers are going through it now, and I think they've they've had some degree of, of of trouble. You look at the other teams in the American League West, teams that have contended over the last couple of years together. Look at what Seattle is doing right now. Now, look, they're not going to be able to keep this up, but the Mariners are twenty five and six over 
over since July 25th and in Houston, a two-time world champion and the the the, the resounding kings of the AL West is uh, 18 and 14 in that stretch. The Rangers are a 500 club. My point here is it takes something to learn how to play in a playoff race, and I think that's what the Rangers have encountered here in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things to kind of dive into here. I, I want to say, first of all, you cited those numbers of these three teams. Um, I don't see the Seattle maintaining a, a pace like that, 25-6. and six. That's uh, outrageous uh, to think that they could do that over these final 30-something games. Um I don't know, and I don't think that the Rangers are going to play 500 baseball from here on out. I think that they're a better team than that as well. Uh, so I do think that up till the very end here, this will be very tight with all between all three teams. I, I think that uh, I would expect there not to be more than maybe five games difference between them when, when it's all over. Uh, watching the Rangers here for the last week um, and, and watching this, you know, disintegration of what uh, everything they've built all year long uh, has been uh, uh, disconcerting, uh, horrifying. I mean, what, what, however we want to describe this to watch the, the team kind of fall apart pretty much in, in all aspects, you know, uh, and uh, something I wanted to bring up besides the bullpen, which we, we've just beaten that topic to death. And, and finally, Jose Leclerc came in and pitched very well, uh, that, that last that last out was a little problematic there, especially the way Adolis handled that fly ball in right field. I thought that ball was was going out when it was, came off the bat. Uh, but um, Jose, I, think, and I, I do want to say one thing before you go any further. You're, I think you're glossing over Martin Perez with that. Statement. Well, I was just about to say Martin Perez. I, uh, I, I don't want him to get glossed over because he's been a forgotten man out there for the last month. And this, Kevin, is the guy why are you glossing can't... over him? Kevin, yeah, explain no yourself now. I, I, it's just Good like in gosh. My, it's like talking to my Martin wife. Perez. I'm, not even, I'm not even finished this sentence before she's telling me something I've done wrong. Uh, it, yeah, I thought Martin Perez looked as finally, sharp last, finally yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Please I go on. That, that Martin Perez looked as good last night as he's looked all year. Frankly, I, I thought he was hitting his spots. I thought he looked really sharp. Uh, you know, and, and, and let's face it. His first couple of outings here in the bullpen had not gone well. Uh, I, I disagree. I don't think he. I, I don't think he's pitched poorly out, out of the bullpen. I mean, he's pitched in low leverage situations where the deal was save the rest of the bullpen. He's mopped up innings. I, I feel like Martin Perez has responded as well as a guy could to being said to being told, "Hey, you've gone from being an all star to being probably a guy who doesn't end up on our playoff roster." Now make the best of it. And and I think he has. I think he has handled it well. I think he's picked up innings. And I, I've said to him a couple of times, look, I know this is not what you want, and I know you're not happy and you shouldn't be happy right now, but but stay ready. And I think that's what he's done. And, and Are you taking credit race- for Martin Perez now? You're telling him to stay ready? You're you're Mar- you're coaching Martin Perez now? What's up? Don't you yes. have enough to do to just report on this team? Yes, I, 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 yes, that I, I gave him some encouraging words because that's the kind of upbeat human that I am, Kevin. Um, <laughs> but I, I, this guy, one thing he said last week when we talked about this was, "Look, I'm not 21 anymore. I'm not a kid, and and I know that there are 
there are a number of Ranger fans who who remember emotional Martin Perez and, and, and a guy with supposedly a really high ceiling who didn't reach that. And I think people are willing to jump off the, that bandwagon very quickly with him. But this is a this is an experienced veteran now who can fill a role for the Rangers, and they absolutely needed him last night with a very thin bullpen. And I think he he did a really good job. He came in, um, walked the first hitter, and then got six consecutive outs, uh, and and was able to hand that game over to, to Jose Leclerc. So that was a big contribution for Martin Perez, and I think I think it's going to earn him another opportunity or two here, and with games that are that are much more in. Um, still in the competition, the competitive phase. Oh, I don't think there's any question about that. Um, and I will say, too, in his defense in that on that walk, my gosh, it seems like the strike zones are just getting worse and worse for these umpires. I, yeah, it's, know, it's, 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 it's I, just brutal. It's I brutal. really am not a, I'm not a big fan of automated ball strikes, but it can't get here fast enough because it, it just feels like it feels like either umpires have given up or they are so completely fooled by framing techniques that that we're just seeing absolutely awful calls. I mean, I felt bad. Listen, you know, talk about guys that, that I've been fond of. Joey Gallo, I, I was fond of when he was here. He's a nice kid. I think he's never really realized his abilities or, or there's issues going on there. But he got so badly screwed on a call in the extra inning game the other day that, that led to his ejection that I'm just like, where is the strike zone? You know, we, these guys these guys deserve a fighting chance up there. And and when you're calling pitches six inches off the zone, it's just there's no consistency. Well, it's it, and it's like the and we've always said this. All right, if you're going to call this pitch, then call it consistently. If you're going to call this pitch, it's off the plate. They're not even doing that. It is just all over the map, and I don't I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on with all. And and, and here's what you have to understand. And it's so bad now they they have to do something about it. But even if you're only missing six, five or six calls a game, you know, five or six calls a game is a lot. You know, in, in key situations, for, for a count to go from from uh, one and two to two and one, that's a huge difference. You know, that changes everything in a game. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, so, just, it's not a good situation with the umpires. I, I don't know why it's gotten this bad this year, but it is it is shockingly bad from my perspective. Yeah, I think it is too. All right, so let's move on from that and talk about things that are shockingly bad. Uh, so the night before, when the Rangers blew uh, the, which might you know, there's been a lot of competition lately for the worst loss of the season, uh, and they have been piling them up. Uh, but we might not have ever have seen that the night before this last win had Ezekiel Duran simply tagged up from second base and gone to third on a ball to the warning track in which the left fielder is running away from the play towards center field. There is simply no way if he catches or doesn't catch that ball, if he doesn't catch the, the ball, then Zeke Durant can walk backwards from second base and score. And, and if he does catch the ball, there's no way he, he's not going to get him from getting to third base. And instead, he runs halfway to third, goes back, and then he can't tag up. And then yeah, I, the next place, of course, Corey Seager, it's a fly ball to the track, and that would have scored him from third base. And the Rangers would have won that game. I, th- I listen. I think the right call there would be would have been for Duran to to hang near second base and then tag up. Even if he had, 
I, I don't know if he had gone halfway, if he'd have been able to get back to second. But yeah, he broke too far towards third and, and stutter stepped. And it was a bad base running play. And the day before, Leody Tavares tried to steal third base with Corey Seager up and, and no outs. Um, and just a bad, bad base running decision. And, and my point here is that we just talked about two guys who are 24 years old who, going back to my point, have never been in a playoff race before playing for a team that is looking over its shoulder a little bit, and they're making the kinds of unforced errors that inexperienced teams make. That said, it's not just limited to them, right? In that horrible 7-6, 13-inning loss that ended with Jonathan Hernandez, another inexperienced guy, walking three consecutive batters, look, Aroldis Chapman made an incredibly bad pitching violation when he stepped off the mound, called timeout, and then had two unsuccessful throwovers to first base, leading to awarding the tying run to move to second base. So there have been a number of unforced errors all throughout this roster, and that's been the thing that has been, to me, the most surprising thing is that they are playing like a team that's looking over its shoulder or had been looking over its shoulder a little bit. And, and I thought Marcus Simeon said something really profound uh, earlier last week. He, he, um, he, he, he related his playoff experience runs in, in Oakland and he always talked, and he talked about how they were always playing from behind. And he said, when you're playing from behind, you have no choice, but to look at the game in front of you, you can't worry you can't think. You don't have time to worry about anybody else. You can't worry what, what happened in that game. And you're just playing what's in front of you. And I think that's what the Rangers need to get back to. And maybe the fact that they're now playing a little bit from behind, maybe that helps. Well, I, I got to tell you, on, on the on the Chapman throwovers, I, to me, that had nothing to do with trying to hold that runner on. That was For him, it was, I can't throw a strike here. You know, I, I've, I've lost it, and I'm just going to try to throw over here to first to try to, to get myself – you know, distracted and get something else going on here. It just, it, it, he, he was losing his mind. Jonathan Hernandez was losing his mind at the end of that, you know, falling off the mound, walking around after he's thrown these pitches. I, I, I have, I don't know that I've seen a reliever lose it as completely in the, in the course of one inning as Jonathan Hernandez did. I mean, early, early on his, his slider must have looked unbelievable because guys were swinging at it. And it's two feet out of the strike zone. And then when they stopped swinging at it, you know, it was all over. I, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't understand how this kind of thing infects an entire bullpen like it did. Because both LeClerc and Hernandez went from guys who were very uh, serviceable pieces in a bull, at the end of a bullpen uh, a couple of years ago to injuries, to their comebacks when they just uh, completely lost their confidence. It's not a... To me, it's not anymore a matter of mechanics or how healthy they are. They just lost their confidence. Uh, and I just don't understand how that happens to two guys like that. And then, of course, a guy like Aroldis Chapman comes back. You know, w- when you're at his age and you still throw can throw 102, even 103, I'm wondering if, if sometimes if – how about just 98, you know? How about not trying to put so much into this and just making sure you're not putting yourself in a situation where you're where you're throwing uh, uh, you're you're losing the strikes? Well, I mean the 
the second day, he was pitching for the second straight day, and when he pitches on back-to-back days, he's not going to have 102. Um, and he didn't. Uh, but I do, I do think. Look, you, we're we're picking nits here, but Chapman's going to do what Chapman's going to do, and he's he's an all-out max effort pitcher. And if you say, okay, like take something off here, I think you 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 kind of trim a little bit of the competitiveness out of him, and that potentially leads to bad results. I I, I just think. Yeah, he lost it. He couldn't throw a strike. He threw over to second base a couple times. He stepped off. Mike Maddox and Mike Maddox actually came out of the dugout, um, and there there was a conversation with umpires, and it looked like there was some confusion over whether Maddox was going to the mound or whether that was going to be charged as an extra visit. And quite frankly, I think the Rangers were just trying to buy Chapman some time to catch his breath out there um, because he had gotten flustered with the situation. Yeah, no question about that. Well, we'll see where this goes from here. I I, I, I do think that, and I've always thought that LeClerc could creep back into a role here. His stuff is good enough if he trusts it. Uh, he certainly seemed to be trusting it Monday night. It looked a lot better. Uh, his command was a lot better, and he was using a wider assortment of his pitches. Um I, I did feel like that that, that, that shows some progress, and you know, I think you can see that in, the relief, in his relief after Adolis caught that ball in right field, a uh, big smile on his face. And, and you know, it, it, the body language of these guys is, is pretty unmistakable, you know, especially a guy like Jose. Um, and, I, and, I, and I do hope he's gotten himself to that point. So, Evan, uh, the Rangers are going to have call-ups here in, in a week or so. And, and uh, I know you don't want to talk about this, but I do, uh, is that uh, I was kind of counting on Evan Carter getting called up and then throwing him out there in center field and giving Leody a little break. Um, but uh, you're telling me that that's not going to happen. I don't think they would have promoted him to AAA on, well, today, officially, if they were going to call him up in two days. I, I I don't see what sense that makes. I, I think they want Evan Carter to finish out the season at AAA. Um, I, they're going to call up one position player, um, and who that will be, I couldn't tell you right now. I really couldn't. I, you know, maybe they, they call up another middle infielder in Jonathan Ornelas. I don't know that they're, and maybe Carter's as, as good an option as they have to add anybody to the roster. But listen, if you're going to call up somebody, you have to add Justin Foskey to the roster this year after, after the end of the season. So if you're going to call up a, a hitter to me, maybe Foskey makes a little bit of sense. And then you can only call up one pitcher and, that's probably going to be actually the activation of Nate Uvalde, Uh, Hopefully within the next week, he's supposed to throw another bullpen today. We'll see how that goes. Uh, it's dragged on, I think, a little bit longer than, than the Rangers had hoped. But I don't uh, – this is not a team that I think is going to get great help from minor league call-ups in September. The rules have changed dramatically. It's not, you know, it's not emptying your roster. Uh, and uh, – the guys who are in the big leagues are the guys who can help this team right now. Let me ask you this. If they were not contenders, would Evan Carter or, uh, be, be coming up? I think if they were not contenders, it's it's possible. I think that if they were not contenders, Leody wouldn't have had a good first half and he probably would be, have ridden himself out of the picture already. And the Rangers would be saying, look, Evan Carter is probably going to be our center fielder in 2024. Um, but Tavares has, has Tavares has tailed off badly in the second half, but he's I, I think he's still 
at this point in time, their major league center fielder. And I, I just don't, I don't see them calling up a 21 year old that they just promoted to triple. I just, if they were going to call Carter up, I just don't think they would have promoted him to triple I. That's the, that's the only thing. I think they would have just called him straight up from double I. Okay. All right. That's what you say. Uh, I, I got to tell you, I, uh, looking at these guys in this roster, that these are, we just talked about the mistakes some of these young guys have made. And, and I realize they're just 24 years old. But, you know, when you're in high school, when you're in, you know, they teach you to tag up on a fly ball to the warning track. Uh, it, it's, it's not, you know, as, as Bruce Bochy said, this is baseball 101. And it is baseball one on one, and at some point, and I and I think he made that clear to him, and I think him saying that to the to the media makes that pretty clear. That's what he's saying to him. We expect you to be able to make decisions like this. Uh, you, you know, you can't make these. And you know, and, and Leone taking off for third with Corey Seager at the plate. It's just these are ridiculous kind of things, and these are, are frankly things that are indicative of a, a longer term. Uh, we, we've seen a lot of this kind of stuff from Leone Tavares. And and he's played a lot of baseball. He's got he's played a lot of baseball, at, you know, at, at the big league level, at least for a guy his age. So, and he's always kind of been promoted, as we've talked about, ahead of what his performance has been. Uh, now he's 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 played well in spurts, but you know it's it's time for everybody to get going here. Uh, and and uh, and I think that the messages need to be sent, and I think that Chris Young will do that probably in this offseason. All right, that's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. Now we're going to talk a little college football because it's starting up this week. And I said I'll be out uh, at that TCU-Colorado game on Saturday. Uh, But the big news, uh, and it may already have happened by the time you're listening to this, is that the uh, SMU Mustangs are the newest members of the ACC. I got to tell you, I did not see this coming. Uh, Didn't. Didn't really think they were going to get in the Pac-12, which, as it turns out, there is no Pac-12. There is a fi- the Pac-12 is officially now Oregon State and Washington State. Uh, just it's just hard to believe that that's what it's down to uh, at this point. And what do you think that those two, uh, you know, schools must be thinking that we're the only ones that nobody wants? Uh, that was it's kind of phenomenal that this is how it's going to happen, and this is going to start. Next year, uh, in 2024, SMU will be members. Now, they had to sign a prenup to get in that says that they will not take any media revenue for seven years. Seven years of no media revenues. By by my math, that comes to at least $280 million that they're foregoing for the opportunity to do this. You know, they, they would have made... You know, they're losing money by not being in the AAC, as a matter of fact, because of this, because they won't get it. They won't have any TV revenue coming in. But, you know, all they need to do is call on the heirs of those old SMU boosters. And uh, and I think they can make up for a little bit of this. But it's a it's a pretty remarkable development that SMU will finally be back to a power five conference. Uh, the next to last of the old SWC schools to be back in the big time. Rice, of course, still out. Okay, but my, my question on this is, seven years from now, will we still have Power Five conferences? I mean, I, I understand the repositioning now, but I don't know that this is the, the, the final landscape of what college football is going to look like. And I don't know that betting on seven years down the road and giving up all that revenue in between is the way to go either. I mean, that seems like a really risky proposition uh, with where things are. I mean, because you hear the talk is just, look, it'll just 
evolve into super conferences or just, you know, whatever. But I, I don't know with what we've seen here, if, if we're even close to what the final composition of college football is going to look like from a conference standpoint. And I, I, I think- I'd, I'd go so far as to wager this. If you're going to end up with four super conferences, you're going to end up with the SEC, the Big Ten, maybe the, rein, the reinvigorated Big 12. Does the ACC even end up as one of the power five at that point in time? I, I don't know. Well, I, I would argue that the ACC is a, a, in its current composition is a better conference than the Big 12. I mean, first of all, you got you got Clemson, you got North Carolina, you, you've got Miami. I mean, the, at least these are some some name brand programs. Once Oklahoma and Texas leave the Big 12, you know, there's no more there's no more brands left in the in the Big 12. So I mean, what they have is size, and they have markets, uh, and that's what AC uh, ACC has. Uh, or at least it may not have in the future. To David's point, yeah, absolutely. I, I've written a column that's going to run here as soon as this thing uh, hits the button. Uh, but, yeah, it's a mixed bag, right, uh, in the short and the long term. Not only are you foregoing all this money, uh, Florida State and North Carolina and Clemson have all made noise about wanting bigger splits. They don't get their bigger splits. They're going to want to leave. What's keeping them from doing that right now is the grant of rights they signed through 2036, which holds them, or at least holds their media rights, to the ACC. That's pretty prohibitive. Uh, Our old friend Dennis Dodd from CBS uh, recently talked to Bob Bowlesby, the former Big 12 commissioner, uh, who told him that uh, the ACC copied the Big 12's grant of rights uh, contract, which, as Bob puts it, is practically bulletproof and it's almost impossible to break this thing according to several law firms that have looked at it. So if that's true, it's going to be kind of a moot point. Uh, I think certainly the sec, if it ever decides to expand more and if it drops some of the, some of the things that have kept uh, rival schools from joining the sec, such as Florida doesn't want Florida state to join, you know, uh, South Carolina doesn't want Clemson to join you, you, you've had those, those kind of issues keeping some of those schools from possibly joining the SEC. Will that change in the future? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, that, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, but to your point, David, yeah, if it all shakes out again, uh, then and uh, some, there's some kind of further realignment, then, yeah, SMU would uh, probably be left out uh, once again. But for now, anyway, if you put if you can put aside the fact that they're not getting rich off this deal, they're in, you know, they're in a power five conference. Uh, And that and and as as I learned when the uh, Texas A&M left the Big 12 to go to the SEC and I raised the question of if you can't win the Big 12, what makes you think you're going to be competitive in the SEC? And all the blowback I got from SEC or from the A&M fans was that we're in the SEC. We don't care. You know, it's just membership is credibility. And that's all anybody cares about anymore. And we know that because now the, the Longhorns and Sooners have come to the same conclusion, right? That, you know, Texas can't win the Big 12. And yet it's dying to, to move over to the SEC. How much harder is it going to get to win over there? A lot oh. harder. And they, and they can't win now. Well, I do understand it from the SMU and the other schools at that level standpoint that even and, and TCU's run into this too. As good as TCU has been in recent years, 
I don't know that they've developed their own brand the way that a Texas and OU, the other team. So how do you get that brand? You have to draft off a conference alignment. You know, even, you know, Kevin, you were talking about going to the TCU game, but that's driven largely because Colorado's coach is coming in, right? I mean, that that's sure. the, the other element there, not beyond just what TCU has established on the field here recently. So I, I do understand how difficult it is for really good college teams to build a profile and how it takes a while to do that. So maybe, you, you know, the only way to do that is to draft off conference legitimacy. But boy, it just puts everyone in a. I, I just, I just don't know that anyone has their arms around what college football structure is going to look like here down the road. But again, you can argue the other side of that, right? And just go, well, you just have to look at where it is now, uh, make the best decisions you can for now, and then just position yourself, or you have another decision to make going forward. Don't leave yourself out where you'll have no decision going forward. And that's well, what SMU's done with this. Well, sure, because let's look at it this way. Had there not been all this ground-shaking movement uh, with the Pac-12, SMU wouldn't be in a Power 5 program now. Yeah. This, because along with uh, SMU joining the ACC, of course, was Cal and Stanford. Uh, and so th- those those schools only had to, to pay a, a 70% you know, penalty for joining up. They're, they're going to get 30% of their, of their normal revenues for coming here, uh, much like what you – know, some of the agreement that's going to happen between the four corner schools joining the, uh, the big 12. Uh, I think probably, you know, they, they've had equitable revenue sharing in these leagues uh, for years. Now I think probably what you'll see are deals where uh, to try to keep everybody happy and to keep the big brands happy. Okay. We're going to pay you more. They have come up with a new structure here where if you go, uh, you know, if you make the, the big six bowls, uh, then your cut's going to be higher than somebody who does it, which frankly is the way it should be. You know, I, I don't have any problem with that. You know, there's no need for for conferences to be supporting programs that that frankly don't contribute to it. I mean, that's what led to the dissolution of the Southwest Conference was the fact that Texas got tired of, of supporting all these schools that, that don't do anything. You know, the Rices. Now these uh, conferences are taking the same approaches that teams are in a salary cap world of – Let's just fill out. Let's fill out our roster with what the cap can afford here. So we'll leave this spot open. Whoever you know, SMU, you want to join us and sign away your rights for seven years. We're happy to have you. Otherwise, if you don't do it, we'll find someone else. It's just about finding a profile that fits that slot and going forward. And you're slotted at the end of the league, but there's still benefits to that. Sure, and and let's also just say here real quickly about. Uh, we, we hadn't talked about the fact that SMU couldn't get in the Big 12, which would have been the best case scenario, yeah. right? At least for for an old Southwest Conference guy like me, it, from the stand. So you you're, you're playing all your old neighbors again. It, it would it could have been a deal. And Tim Callis, I wrote a column about this recently. If if uh, SMU had made it and he could have divided up the uh, you know Big 12 into to three different divisions. And that one division could have been almost an old Southwest Conference one, which would have been, really been great. Well, the deal was the Big 12 was never going to take uh, SMU and because it already has what it needs from, from SMU, which it presents the Dallas, North Texas market. Uh, they don't need that. They've got that already. They got that because of Texas and A&M and, and TCU. I'm not, not a and I'm sorry, but, it, but because of the schools that are already here. So that, that's not, that's not going to do anything for the Big 12. 
Uh, I think the fact that the Big 12 and Brent Yormark, the commissioner, was uh, flirting with both Gonzaga and UConn. I mean, these are basketball schools, Brett. I mean, come on. Uh, and he was talking to them instead of talking to SMU. So it was always going to be for SMU to get back into a Power 5 conference. It was always going to be a school that didn't already have a toe in Texas. And that, that meant, you know, the Big Ten, well, no, the Big Ten was not going to take SMU. Uh, so it was either going to be the Pac-12 or it was going to be the ACC. So I, I do think that the ACC presents a lot of uh, uh, upside for for SMU. I, did, I do think it is a better fit for them than the Pac-12 would have been. Uh, it, it's still obviously, you know, not very, you know, there, there are no real rivals for SMU uh, in the uh, ACC, but there were no real rivals for SMU in the AAC either. I mean, it's not like you got all you know, ginned up to play Temple. So I, I think that this is going to be uh, – a, uh, it's a good thing for SMU. Well, that's the way we should look at it. We, we started with the caveat that, that all this could fall apart here in a few years. Who knows what's going to happen in college football uh, – no one knows that anymore. Uh, usually what happens is we have this big wave of realignment go through, and then everything's calm for about uh, three or four or five years, and then we see where it all is at that point. If, if you know, Florida State and the Clemson and North Carolina and Miami and whoever, you know, leave uh, the ACC, well, then SME will be stuck again. But that's four or five years down the road, and I think that their big boosters are certainly willing to, to do all this. And let's not – Put aside the fact that, you know, uh, for at least for the, uh, the interim and how, however they structure this, uh, they'll get to play Notre Dame. Notre Dame may come to Dallas, to, you know, to play the, the Mustangs. These are, these are fun, exciting games. These are, these are things that they haven't had on their radar for a long time. So in the end, this is all good for SMU, even with all the stuff that's going to happen. They will not be playing Notre Dame in Dallas. Ever? Ever. Ever? I'll bet you that that does not happen. Really? Yeah. Wow. I'm going to hold you to that. What's what, the bet? What, what, what's what the have bet? you got? What's, yeah, let's look at that. I say a million dollars. I said one dollar. One dollar? I bet one dollar on anything. You know? I bet one dollar that you're, you're going to start growing hair, Evan. I'll take that bet. <laughs> What have you what have you got against the SMU getting to play Notre Dame? I just don't think that I mean I mean I, I just don't think that when it's all said and done, it's gonna happen. I mean, how many how many ACC games is, is Notre Dame playing right now? So they play uh six games, uh six ACC games Notre Dame does in football. Uh they they are going to play uh Louisville at Louisville, right? And they're yes. going to play Pitt at South Bend. If they're going to play Louisville, and I'm going to tell you that I could believe that they they could play SMU at Gerald Ford Stadium. They could. I mean, I, listen, it's I just think that there's an awful lot of hurdles to jump through with this with the realignment, and I think that like matching up Notre Dame and SMU are two big uh, two big ifs. I think uh, Notre Dame is playing six. ACC games this year, um, and I think their next, if I'm reading this story correctly on ACC sports, their next 15 years of ACC opponents are set, 
of course, set in college football with scheduling is not exactly set in stone. It's it's more like written in in pencil. But um, let's let if we're still doing this podcast in twenty thirty six, Kevin. If I'm still alive in 2036. If we're still doing the podcast in 2036, let's revisit it then. Let's have a special episode on that. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a tease. Guys, That's a good tease to end on. Yeah, I'll, I'll, settle, I'll settle for Georgia Tech coming to SMU at this point. Yeah. I was all excited about this. And then you guys have just, just thrown water all over it. I, I, just, I, just, I, I mean, I, I just think that uh, I, I think conference realignment particularly outside of the SEC and the Big Ten right now, I think is just it, – it, it's it's just eyewash, right? The SEC – like that's one thing I was thinking about when you guys were talking earlier. The SEC and the Big Ten have done nothing but add over the past 60 years. There's been stability, and that's what's built that conference from regional powerhouses to national powerhouses. It, it's, it's stability, the quality of, of football, and the rivalries. Like you just said, Kevin, who what what is SMU's ACC rival going to be? What rival does SMU have on their football schedule any longer? I mean, what is a rivalry game? The TCU game is a rivalry game, right? And that's going away. Well, it could be, yeah. They, TCU is, is going to ask to hit a pause on that. So, uh, yeah, I think that will happen. Uh, so, I, I just don't I, – I think it's important for SMU to get the branding with a Power 5 conference. I think that – all the stuff that lingered from the death penalty and things that just kind of hurt TCU becoming a, a legitimate football presence over the last 30 years needed can only go away with them being connected to a legitimate conference. And maybe the ACC is the right answer, and maybe it's worth those seven years that they'll go without TV. But I do think that I, I do think seven years in college football right now is an eternity. Sure, sure it is. Like, like question is not though that they don't they don't need the money. They need the fans to show up, uh, and they and they and that's one of the things that's a, an issue. For everybody could part. use the money. Let's face facts. Everybody could use the money too. Well, everybody wants the money. It's not that whether they can use it. They all just want the money. Look, it's just a it's a crazy place. This is where everything started to go wrong in college football. Is that everybody just got drunk? on the money and the possibilities of what they can make. And it led to everything that you can, I, I, I'm tired of listening to old administrators uh, and old coaches talk about, Oh my gosh, NIL and all these things have destroyed college football. Jimbo Fisher is saying that, uh, you know, unfortunately it's all about the money and this guy's got a guaranteed $95 million contract. You, you can't say those kind of things. It's so hypocritical. Had, had these schools not chased all this kind of money and sold their souls for all of it. Uh, we, we'd be okay. You know, everything would be all right. Nothing this would have happened. But that's what happens when when you try to get this much money and you're paying coaches this much and you're and you're building, uh, you know, 14 different, you know, uh, practice fields and uh, an enclosed one and, and the one that's outside and one with the natural grass, and one with artificial turf. You're doing all these kind of things. You're, you're sending the message that we got to have all this. Uh, so. So college football is is certainly done this to itself. It has no these administrators have no one to blame but themselves. Uh, but I'm just trying to make the best out of all this, boys, uh, and and just trying to have a little happy note here for SMU that you guys have have rained all over my parade and SMU's parade. 
So from everybody in here, everybody out there who is trying to be happy about SMU joining the ACC, thanks, and we'll see you next time.